Today's episode of the Heart of Giving podcast is part of a special series we call Made by the Bay. During these episodes, we get to feature amazing people in the Bay Area who are shaping the social landscape of that community. We're grateful for the generous support of Tipping Point Community for making these episodes possible. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here, we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You've heard me say in many podcasts that there are all sorts of ways of giving back and contributing to community. And today we're going to talk with Wesley Alexander, who is the CEO of CoBiz Richmond out in the Bay Area. And through facilities, Wesley is able to strengthen his communities by providing a place for creative people, potential business owners, charity leaders to gather and meet and do work, collaborate and learn. And so, Wesley, it's great to have you. Wesley, his background, uh, we're going to cover in the podcast, but he's done a variety of things in his young life, including uh, as a special agent for the FBI. He's worked in the technology space. He's also an attorney. So we have someone who has a broad range of career experience with us today. And he's going to tell us how all of that has led him to lead CoBiz Richmond. Wesley, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Art. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for the work that you have been doing throughout your professional journey in terms of giving back and having an impact on the community. So, Wesley, you were raised on the East Coast, but now you're out on the West Coast. How did that happen and how did that lead to you running an organization like this, COBIS? I had the fortunate opportunity to uh, pursue a joint JD MBA at American University. And in my time there, I was very interested in how can our small businesses in our communities get access to the best practices and as I was doing my, my studying of different industries, I came across venture capital and the tech industry. And I said, you know what? I need to get to California. I need to be as close as possible to the VC arena to be close to the emerging technologies, the best practices that lead these companies to become global enterprises that impact how we go about our everyday routines personally, as well as when, when doing business. And so I was able to secure an opportunity with Intel Corporation where I was able to manage about um, almost $500 million in budgets, not only at Intel, but also with a startup called Care Innovations, where we focus on medical devices and assistive technology devices a few years before the cloud cloud technology became really mainstream. So that's how I ended up coming to California. 
So you get out there and you're you're with Intel and you transition from Intel to what? I transitioned to the startup funded by GE and Intel called Care Innovations. And that was really the opportunity for me to see literally from the ground up, how does a startup come to life? From the facilities to technology, to hiring, to legal, marketing, branding, the IT infrastructure required. I had a chance to really be heavily involved with all the dynamics that come into not only creating a, a startup, but also sustaining a startup. Now, did you have a tech background? I know you're a lawyer, but how did the tech, how did you get connected to tech? Um, primarily in terms of getting connected to tech was kind of conveying my value as someone that can um, organize and strategize and also understand the financials and how that connects to the operations to help an enterprise be successful. So I presented that portfolio to, let's say, for example, to the recruiters at Intel. And that's how I was able to get my foot in the door to come into the technology arena. Once I got into that arena, I started uh, really studying and understanding the different principles. And then I started becoming a co-founder also of different startups. So, for example, I'm a co-founder of an app called MoBNP. And it's an on-demand mobile notary platform that connects B2B and B2C customers to a notary anytime, anywhere throughout the United States. And we just launched that in April of uh, 2022. Fantastic. So tell us about CoBiz. So when it comes to CoBiz, earlier you mentioned facilities. And when it comes to our communities, having facilities that can meet our needs is really critical. And a lot of times they, they refer to it as the power of space. So CoBiz is a 9,000 square foot co-working space that activates people as a whole person. So we want to activate them professionally, entrepreneurially, and as a human being. Many times in the community like Richmond, California, which traditionally has had quite a bit of adverse historical outcomes, financially, educationally, environmentally, and especially when it comes to quality of life outcomes. So with us, we're trying to make sure that individuals that are trying to make changes in Richmond and the surrounding communities, that they actually have a space where they can, one, be productive, but more importantly, no longer work in isolation. They have the opportunity to tap into social capital, to network with other like-minded individuals, and to obtain the best-in-class practices, technology, and resources, whether it's legal services, branding, cybersecurity, uh, whatever, whatever impacts their particular endeavor, they can receive the support and resources here. And that's ultimately designed to activate this community. If you activate the people and they understand their value, they start to question and say, you know what? I do need to go to City Hall. I do need to reach out to the PR lead at this particular corporation and have a sit down and understand how can they better serve our communities. And so that's the intention of uh, Co-Biz Richmond as a co-working space. Now, a lot of people listening won't know about Richmond. Tell us about Richmond and why you selected Richmond as a place to launch CoBiz. Richmond has a very a strong historical presence. During World War II, millions of people migrated from the South to come work here in the yards, the shipyards of Richmond, California. So it's a great migration of African-Americans as well as other individuals into this area. And they were able to create the most liberty ships that were instrumental in ensuring that successful victory for the U.S. and the Allies when it came to World War II. Shortly thereafter, Richmond was a predominantly African-American city, was, was thriving, had vibrant downtowns. People in the Bay Area saw Richmond as a true hub for economic wellness. And more importantly, it was also 
one of the first few places where African-Americans could actually reside or secure a home. Over time, unfortunately, with more with redlining and the increase in um, drugs and things of that nature, the city took a downturn and African-Americans were greatly impacted in an adverse manner. And so when we look at the history of African-Americans throughout the Bay, throughout the country, it's a similar narrative. Industry left our cities. The school systems went down. Quality of life options from having, let's say, simple, something as simple as a movie theater were no longer available. And as a result, despair and hopelessness and incarceration increased. So when we couple that with what are the assets that Richmond has to offer? You have this great diversity. It was recently listed as the number one, most as the most diverse city in America from a socioeconomic, cultural, and household diversity. There is this beautiful shoreline the most has a, um, most miles of shoreline in the Bay Area. This is great blue collar history as well. From a transportation standpoint, there is the ferry, the Amtrak, the local subway, quite a bit of manufacturing and a beautiful port as well that can be leveraged to activate this community in a positive way. And so for us here at Cobiz, we're looking to say, what's a central place where we can create this co-working space where it can truly touch the people in the heart of the community? And so we found, we decided to position it in downtown Richmond, California, at the footsteps of the BART, Amtrak, and the um, central bus station, and only five minutes away from the ferry. So we wanted to make it accessible to people, but also be very close to the people who have been most impacted by these adverse historical actions. So that's the primary reason why um, we're here in Richmond. And it's one of the last few places in the, in the Bay Area where there's a predominantly African-American population. Now, 9,000 square feet is, is a lot of space in that part of the country. How were you able to acquire that? I mean, are you essentially independently wealthy and you <laughs> went out and just bought land down, bought a property downtown and said, I'm going to do this co-biz? Or, or how did you come across that property? So I'm not independently wealthy. As in most projects, there was quite a bit of tri-sector partnering. So we had... For example, BART, which is a local transportation municipality here in the Bay Area, along with Chevron, which is probably the biggest major corporation in the city of Richmond. We also had another organization called Richmond Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center. And then we have a downtown advocate called the Richmond Main Street. All these partners came together and were discussing how do we activate this community from a workforce and entrepreneurship perspective. Some of the, some of the perspectives shared was, let's create another community center. And the other people were like, no, we need something different, something that's going to truly activate entrepreneurship and workforce. And that's when the idea of a co-working space came to life. In those conversations, they're looking for facilities. And it came to light that at every BART station where there's a parking garage, there are these commercial spaces that majority of the time have not been activated. And so we were able to identify here in Richmond this unoccupied commercial space that was never actually activated. And so we entered into conversations with BART and they were able to connect with our developer, whose name is Ernst Valerie, and were able to create that uh, liaison to say, here's the space. They see the vision in terms of the value of this particular project called Cobiz Richmond, and they were willing to support it. And we were able to secure seed funding from Chevron to help us get off the ground with the intention that Cobiz, from offering memberships to the stakeholders here, people using our meeting rooms for the different activities and also using the space for events. That will help us establish self-sustainability as an enterprise. Well, you mentioned Chevron. I have to tell you my own story about Chevron. 
back after the uh, Rodney King riots, wasn't because of Rodney King, it was a result of what happened to Rodney King. There was a lot of rioting in South Central Los Angeles. And I was doing job training with an organization called OIC at the time. And as the CEO, I was asked by our chairman, Leon Sullivan, to get a program going out in South Central Los Angeles. We didn't have any resources. The Department of Labor was funding us to do a lot of things. They called and said, we want you to get a program started. We don't have any money, but go do it. And so I went out there and began meeting with different leaders, among them Chevron, a gentleman by the name of Wally Fassler, who I was introduced through another connection that I had with Chevron, a man by the name of Luddy Hayden, who's a friend to this day. And because of that, they developed an interest also in workforce development. Ultimately, through their chairman, Wally Fassler introduced this idea to their chairman, who was Ken Durr at the time. And Ken Durr provided the resources that we needed. At the time, it was a million and a half dollars to acquire 40,000 square feet of property wow. in South Central Los Angeles. And we were able to get the OIC going there, which helped people a long time out in that community. So I just want to give Chevron a shout out. But, you know, collaboration was hard then, and I'm sure it was hard now. You mentioned a number of different organizations that came together. How were you able to to get all these groups to coalesce around this idea? As you mentioned, collaborations provide quite a bit of challenges. And what I try to do is really focus on the mission and are we moving as transparently to achieve that mission. So I'm not moving with my feelings. I'm strictly dealing with the facts, highlighting what we need to do to be able to achieve the goal and having those direct conversations so people know I have no agenda, but literally to execute the mission. And in doing so, I think I've been able to um, earn the respect of those different partners. As I understand, they all have their different, I'll say needs and things that they need to accomplish as well. And so I try to be as mindful of that. But ultimately saying, if COBIS is successful, we all win. There'll be additional programs and services that we will need supported here that they can provide in terms of for any future needs, right? So having the big picture and not us getting, trying to avoid having a crab in the barrels perspective that a lot of times, that a lot of times sabotages the impact of collaborative endeavors such as COBIS Richmond. On this podcast, I try to give people the real inside story of what happened in the orientation and creation of different different programs and services. And in your case, you mentioned that there were several partners that came together, but partners don't just come together. Somebody brings them together. And what I really want to know is what did you have to struggle with in order to bring these groups together? What did it take in order to do that? Well, one thing to to highlight, so what you mentioned Chevron earlier, so they had an initiative called Equip Richmond, and that particular initiative was looking on funding about five to six projects that can support, as I mentioned earlier, entrepreneurship and workforce development. And once that initiative was established, individuals such as Brett Sweet at Renaissance, Amanda Elliott at Richmond Main Street, and Andrea Bailey at, at Chevron were able to say we really want to drive this co-working space idea. Once I just, once I heard about it, I presented my vision in terms of what I believe would not only serve this community today, but serve this community 10, 15, 20 years in the future. And so part of that vision was 
reaching out to other stakeholders that have expertise that can impact the people holistically. So, for example, we have a meditation ambassador that does lunchtime meditations at COBIS. And so for those individuals that are already comfortable with meditations and open to that, we have to provide that service. But then there's also individuals that have their own business formation, legal law firms. And so I reach out to those individuals to say, this is what we're doing here in Richmond. It's really important that our people are prepared from a business formation standpoint, having their ducks in order so that when these different programs are available, we can say they meet, they have checked all the boxes so they can secure PPP loans, IDO loans from the SBA, the different grants that are available. These are things that we were severely over, not overlooked, we were considered ineligible for these resources because we didn't have our ducks and orders. Also connected with, when it comes to branding, branding experts to say, uh, when it comes to our businesses, we need, we need to be able to tell our story effectively. So I was able to just really reach out to different individuals and communicate, here's the vision, here's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to build infrastructure for wellness and the expertise that you have to offer will help us in terms of creating a culture. A lot of times in under under-resourced communities, there isn't a culture of collaboration. There isn't a culture of trust. There isn't a culture of best practices. There isn't a culture of networking. And so for me, it was really communicating to these different stakeholders the importance of the vision because when you have a community like Richmond, which has been traditionally marginalized, there are quite a bit of poverty pimps and gatekeepers that want to keep the status quo. And so essentially the work that we're doing here at COBIS was literally challenging that. So we ran to a lot of roadblocks and individuals and institutions trying to stop our progress. So the way I had to counter that was finding the proper allies within the community, also outside of Richmond, global organizations, regional organizations, statewide organizations, and saying, here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's how we do it. Here's the value you can bring and here's how you can benefit. And that's the way we were able to kind of circumvent some of the challenges that traditionally you face with a collaborative project such as COVID. So how long did it take from the creation of the idea to actually opening the front doors? So 2016, kind of ideation, 2019, November 2019, that's when COVID opened its doors. And ironically, when we opened our doors, we didn't have uh, our internet in the building. I spent about 314 days fighting with AT&T. And I say it nicely, fighting to bring dedicated fiber into this community. We, we didn't have that prior to COVID's opening. Once we were able to secure that, we were able to be fully functional as of January 2020. And one of the benefits of it is that other businesses and other residents in the area were able to also secure dedicated fiber, which we know for a lot of, we're looking to invest in new communities. That's a critical resource. For yeah, people. so so back up. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting you off here because that's that blows my mind. So we're talking the whole that region is really focused on tech. Yes. Are you telling me that there was not access to fiber to access internet? I mean, what are you telling me here? I want to make sure I'm understanding. What I'm telling you is that the the redlining is not just financial. It's, it's technology. There's technology, technological redlining. There is the environmental redlining, educational redlining. So yes, we had to scraps to say this project can't be successful if businesses and startups, if uh, professionals can't obtain the best in class internet infrastructure necessary for them to be productive, for them to be successful. Why would I come to a co-working space if we're running on broadband from 1990? 
that's not going to work. So we really had to advocate and you know, reach out to our local representatives, talk to AT&T, just pull every single channel that we could to say, this is this is critical. It's not just to us COVID, but to this area. Well, all the kids during um, the pandemic that had to stay at home to re- receive instruction via Zoom, a lot of those individuals did not have reliable internet at home. That's a problem. How can you know a lot of kids are being left behind just on that fact? And that's not only impacting us here in urban areas, that's affecting children in rural areas. So these are elements that we can't ignore when it comes to wellness of all our citizens, all the people that we want to see have productive quality life options, but also potential careers. And if we don't do it, we're going to have more disparities that, are, as you can see, in terms of the increase in homelessness, not just here in California, but throughout the country. We all have a role to play. And one of my mantras is we must do more. Yeah, we, you know, life is already hard, quote unquote, challenging as it is. But us as adults, we have to we have to do more to ensure that we set up the next generation for success. And that was one that was one way of contributing in terms of the project with COVID. It's like, hey, this you no know, anything less is not optional. And that's been my that's been my mindset since the beginning of the project. People told me, Wesley, it doesn't have to be that nice. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't have to be that nice? They told me it's Richmond. I'm like, I don't even I don't even think that way. And you're not going to tell me that the people here don't deserve to have something that's quality and as functional and as relevant to helping them move in the 21st century as they would in Palo Alto or in Stanford or any other successful community. That's uh, the story behind that. Well, good for you, because I can't imagine a world in that part of the country, especially, that doesn't have Internet access. I mean, real high quality Internet to right to function. I just don't understand. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> and, and, and I know you didn't, and you did something about it. Yes, sir. I can't imagine. I, I just am thinking what those conversations were like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we went to these folks saying, you got to get this straightened out over here. Yes, sir. What was that like? What was that like? Tell us what, what, what happened with that. I would say for any of us that are trying to do great work, we're going to face real challenges. You're, you know, you're changing the status quo, you're challenging the status quo. And I think a lot of times people, when it comes to doing work in our communities, they kind of think it's going to be a straight line. It's not going to be a straight line. You're going to have, you're going to sometimes be by yourself in terms of your understanding of what needs to get done. So you have to have a sound grounding. You also have to have patience in terms of it's a process. You're going to have individuals that are truly ignorant who are in positions of influence and you have to be you just have to move in a wise spirit to be able to circumvent them, right? If this is the person creating the roadblock, it might be someone else who has a equal influence, and you might have to leverage them to kind of counter that person's uh, ignorance or whatever those whatever that person's intentions are. A lot of times, I can definitely say it had an effect on my relationship, right? People were like, "Hey, you no, know what's it's just a job?" No, it's not. It wasn't just a job. There was so much more at stake here. It's, we're talking about legacy building. The individuals that allow myself and Others throughout our community to be able to fight for our dreams, they had to sacrifice. They couldn't just go to, they couldn't just clock in at nine and leave at 5 p.m. It doesn't work that way. Ideally, it would be nice, but when it comes to doing work and transforming the realities, not just of the Black community, but for this country, there are young people, there are elders, there are young, young people with talent that are trying to find their way and the systems that are supposed to be in place to help them navigate successfully, they aren't in place. So it's our responsibility to make sure that we correct that. And just, that's just what's required and there's no other way around it. When I say let's build, it's really about building the generational secession 
that allows any community to be vibrant. We have elders here that have walked into this space before I even opened it that literally broke down in front of me because they couldn't take care of their family. I'm talking about grown men who were who desired to work, who desired to provide. I didn't know them from Adam's apple. And they came in, they saw what we we're trying to build and just broke down in front of me. And I'm like, that's a problem. That, that elder did not feel supported. That elder did not feel he had a community that he can lean on. That's a big problem. And then we have young people who are unsure what to do next. And they're looking for direction. So that's a problem. We can't have a healthy society having these disconnects. We have to restore it. And that's my passion. And I'm hoping that others who really want to see their families and their community thrive, figure out how they can do more. That's my, I guess, challenge to everyone. (laughs) Well, you know, you talk about passion and clearly you have that. But a lot of people's passion ends with the words that they utter about change. Your passion goes far beyond that to actually doing and committing and dealing with the obstacles that jump in the way and all of that to actually make something happen. Dealing with the setbacks and the ignorance and the inevitable difficulties that it takes to succeed. Where does that come from, Wesley? You know, my parents, they uh, immigrated to this country in the 70s. They didn't have much in terms of uh, from Grenada. They didn't they weren't uh, they didn't have a silver spoon. They they had a work ethic about them when they were kids. And then when they came to this country, they had a work ethic about them as well. They also had quite a bit of pride and respect and they treated everyone as human beings. And for me, as I learned more about the history, I was born here, and as I learned more about the history here, I learned more about the history in the islands, in Africa, in South America, I realized that there was this systemic systemic design to really dehumanize people. And my spirit just wasn't with it. And I'm talking about, I was like eight years old when I'm watching these documentaries, and I'm like, nah, this is, this is not how it's supposed to be. And I realized there were those before me that, as I mentioned earlier, that sacrifice that allowed me to pursue my dreams. People like Paul Robeson, a great humanitarian, a great brother who did great things that a lot of our young people don't know anything about him. And when he found out about this systemic design to dehumanize people and he spoke out about it, they basically told him, we're going to wipe you out the history books. People won't know your name. But this man was as popular as Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson globally. So I realized for me, it's about wellness of my community, wellness of people is something that I'm passionate about. I want to make sure that I put myself in a position where I didn't want to just be a speaker. I wanted to say, you know what? I had the know-how. I can share with a young person. I can share with someone how to, how to do something. And if I don't know how to do it, I can put them in touch with someone who can help, who can help them. It's really just about knowing that when we were born, we were born with you know, the right to live. To, to have a quality of life, to fight to have a quality quality of life, every single person. And when someone or something takes that away, to me, that's not only injustice, that's ungodly. And I just can't, personally, I just can't stand by and I guess do nothing about it. So that's where my passion comes from. Well, one of the things I admire about you too is you want to understand how things work. Yes, sir. Whether it's technological, political, social, you name it. You want to know how it works, legal and where does that come from? The how things work. Most people will say, all right, we just we need to know that it works and we'll find people who know how. But you want to get into the how. Why is that so important to you? 
Personally, I believe when you know how things work, you can appreciate what you have. And when we look at our communities that were under-resourced communities, under-invested communities, a lot of times the young people don't know how things work. The adults can't waterfall to the young people how the sewage system works. They can't really speak to how life insurance can be a vehicle to ensure that when someone passes, that doesn't lead the family into poverty. When it comes to engineering, we may, we may buy a laptop and we're not understanding, not chemical design, but uh, material, material design and understanding that's a whole career path. Or when it comes to agriculture, we're so disconnected from how does that arena work? How can I make a living in that particular arena? And as a result, many of our young people are directed into career pathways that are limited to say, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. I want our community to be whole. And we need to know how the whole ecosystem works. Everything that touches us, the supply chain, the marketing, the, the TV rights, licensing, whatever, whatever is involved with us being thriving society, we need to understand how things work so that we can be in position to have influence, to have knowledge, to be able to create institutions that can hire people from our community to create that generational wellness and then generational health necessary to be successful. Last thing I'll close on this. I believe truly I'm supposed to be an engineer, but in my school system, I didn't really have exposure early to even understanding like what does that really look like. As a result, I just kind of look back at something my parents shared with me when I was like five years old. Like, well, you know, you actually were ahead in school, but we we're trying to get you into two schools when we came out to Jersey. And they each try to push you back and put you in remedial classes. And I think about the fact that my parents fought against that. And then I spoke to a whole I spoke to a whole bunch of other black males throughout this country. And they told me they had similar experiences, but their parents didn't necessarily fight back. And I think about how my life could have been impacted if I was put into this pipeline at five years old where I was told I have a learning problem, where I'm told I'm not smart, where I'm in, when I'm grouped with a group of individuals, quote unquote, who are problematic. That could have changed my life outcomes completely. And so I'll be damned if I take a privileged mindset to think that, well, you know what? I'm better or I'm doing well, so forget everybody else. No, there's a lot of great people out here with great talent who just were dealing with systems that put them into boxes. And I want people to have wellness. And part of having wellness is knowing how things work so you can make informed decisions about your life, about your community. And that's my motivation. Well, Wesley, look, we're going to have to leave it right there. But this has been a tremendous interview. And I want to thank you for giving us your time. And more importantly, I want to thank you for what you're doing. You're making a big difference out there for people whose lives would never be what they are were it not for what you're trying to do. So I just want to thank you on behalf of them. And to all of those who are listening to this podcast, reach out to this brother. Find a way to help him. Wesley Alexander at CoBiz. And if you want to support the podcast, I hope you do. You can do that by subscribing to the show. Mainly, that's the big thing. And if you want to support us financially, you can do that by going to give.org. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.